Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. That's why for me, it comes down to those three lessons. I hope anyone I speak to walks away, if nothing else, that they walk away with those three lessons of, you know, we live on a planet, we're all earthlings, and the only border that matters is the thin blue line of atmosphere around us all. All right, ladies, I have an episode for you today that I'm so excited about. A little while back, I put it out to the universe, sorry, no pun intended, that I wanted to interview a female astronaut, and it didn't take too long for that opportunity to come around. My good friend Carol Cox introduced me to Nicole Stott, who spent more than three months at the International Space Station. We talk a bunch about what it's like to be in space, and the picture that she paints fills me with awe. I hope it does the same for you. We also talk about what does one do after a career as an astronaut. Nicole was the first person to paint in space, and after she retired from NASA, she turned her love of art and her desire to serve into a project that now includes painting flight suits and spacesuits with kids with severe illnesses in the United States and all around the world. The flight suits and spacesuits that these kiddos have painted and quilted together have gone up to the space station, and astronauts have worn them on the space station. The YouTube video of an astronaut in ultra-vivid color floating around the space station is really something worth watching. I've put the links to those videos in the show notes. If you can, pause what you're doing to go watch those videos right now just for a few minutes to have a feel for what Nicole is talking about. It will totally shift how you hear this episode. If you can't, that's okay. Just do it later. A couple housekeeping notes. One of them is that we launched right into the conversation. So when I went back to edit, I had to find a clean place to insert the introduction. The second bit is that we both had a bit of background noise going on. Nicole Nicole's got a bit of construction and some airplanes flying overhead, and I've got an average winter cold. I aim to clean it up as best I can, but some of the stuff you just can't always clean all the way out. All right, ladies, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Nicole Stott. Welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast, where you'll hear from women entrepreneurs who are doing good in the world, from spark to screw up to success. Thinking big is in their core. It's in yours and it's in mine. I've traveled to 50 countries and seven continents, done an Ironman, and co-founded a company that has generated millions of dollars for sustainability. My name is Geraldine Carter, and I'm delighted to share with you conversations and coaching with amazing women. Time to get inspired and grow your impact. Nicole, welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast. Thanks, Geraldine. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. 
That whole project started with when I'd first retired from NASA, I had one of my friends from NASA at Johnson Space Center who works in the space station program reach out to me along with an artist named Ian Sion, who was the founder and director of the arts and medicine program at MD Anderson Cancer Hospital in Houston. And he established this in the pediatric side there. And he had always done projects where he would have the kids do, you know, their individual art pieces. And then he would compile them into some really large format art project or art piece. And he'd done things like these paper dragons that, I mean, that sounds really simple, but it was elaborate. I mean, it's like this 25 foot dragon with these little pieces of art that each of the kids had done. And these kind of almost three-dimensional murals and big projects. And so he wanted to do something space themed. And he reached out to the folks at Johnson Space Center. They got to me and we ended up working on space suits. And what started out as the spacesuit art project, which was just like Ian at that hospital, me as some random artist astronaut person, the Johnson Space Center folks, you know, a couple of us just randomly together as this gathering of people doing these things. We discovered that when you reach out to a hospital, say in China, <laughs> and you say, hey, I'd love to have you guys involved with this project and we'd love to paint with your kids and we'll Skype with you. And then you send us all their artwork and we'll build this thing out of it. They kind of look at you like, who are you? you and why should I expose my children to you in any way, shape, or involve them? And so we knew we needed an entity to continue this. And the spacesuit art had gained such great positive momentum that we knew we had to continue it. So we were continuing with the suits, but we're also continuing with, we have a project called Postcards to Space and this Earthrise project that we're doing and all of these things that are kind of in NASA terms, like spinoffs from the original spacesuit projects. So we have like four of us that are on the board and we've really just gotten started in the last couple of months. So now we have this entity that we can go to hospitals around the world and continue to engage. Awesome. So how many art space suits are there right now? So right now there are four. We completed the first one, which was just with the work of the children at MD Anderson in Houston, it was called Hope. And it looks like what you would think of as a spacesuit. And all the little individual pieces of the kids' artwork was quilted together by our real spacesuit company, ILC Dover. They build all of the NASA spacesuits too. And so they volunteered to do this for us and they quilted all that art together into the Hope suit. That was the first one. And then the second one is called Courage and it's more like a flight suit. Like if you see Air Force pilots wearing a flight suit flying in their jets, it's that kind of thing. We just had the kids paint right on it because we had a goal of getting one of the suits up to the space station. And we didn't think they'd let us send one of the big ones. So we thought, well, if we do a flight suit, then we can get it packed up really small and maybe in their discretionary cargo, they can send it up and we can you know, see it in space and the kids can see it in space. And that happened, which was really wonderful. And again, that was just the children from MD Anderson. And then while we were doing that, we kept thinking, man, this is bigger than just one hospital, you know, just one city. So we did a third suit called Unity, and that was big, full spacesuit kind of cover. And we modeled it after the relationships of the International Space Station program. So as you know, we've got the space station. And for the last 20 years now, we've had crew members from 15 different 
countries working peacefully, successfully in space together. And we thought, wow, what better model than that for the kids down here on Earth? And so Ian and I traveled to all of the headquarter partner cities for the space programs around the world. So we went to Moscow and Russia, to Tokyo, Japan, Montreal, Canada, and Cologne, Germany, along with Houston here in the United States. And we painted with kids in the hospitals there. Oh, cool. And that suit, ILC Dover again, built it into the Unity suit. And they figured out a way to pack that whole suit into the helmet. What? And so, I know. It's incredible. So we were able to get that suit up to the space station. And we did like this global video conference with the kids from all over the world and the Mission Control Center and some astronauts on the station, one of them wearing the suit. It was so cool. So that's the third suit. Can we yeah. get video of that somewhere? Yeah, I can send you some. Link to yeah. it in the show notes or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've got really great video. They kind of flew through the station in the suit. It's really beautiful. Wait, describe that a little bit more. <laughs> The Unity suit, the one that's modeled after the station, it flew to the space station. And one of our crew members up there, Jack Fisher, wore it in space. And we did this video conference with the kids while he was wearing it. And the whole rest of the crew was with him, too. They did some really great video for us where they, flying in the suit through the space station, they took video of the spacesuit. And it's incredible because if you know or have seen anything of the inside of the space station or of any spacecraft, really, it's kind of, you know, all white wall or gray and cables and computers. There's not a lot of color or, you know, real vibrancy to the interior of the spacecraft. And so to see this, I get goosebumps thinking about it because it literally is this colorful piece of art just moving through the station. And to know that it's a person inside of it, to know that it really is kind of alive, it's just incredible. And then there's one scene where they get in front of this big window that we have. It's like an earth facing, it's kind of like a bay window. And the suit is all in front of that and they're kind of waving. Oh my gosh. And that it carries the work of all those little kiddos. All those kids. Yeah. So that's very cool. And then the fourth suit that exists right now is called Victory. And it also flew up to the space station. But the interesting thing about Victory is it was built by our Russian station partners. So the spacesuit company in Russia that builds their suits put this one together. And we have one of our partners on the project is a woman named Elena Kuzmenko. And she started her own kind of group in Moscow to do the same kind of work. And so we've been working with her since the very beginning. And this trip that I just took with our group to Germany and France, England, and Russia again was with her as well. But Victory flew to station. We have video of it on the space station as well. And it came back. And now we have two more suits in work. We have a suit that's going to be built by the Russian side again called Dreamer. And Dreamer is going to be built from artwork from kids in all 15 of the space station partner countries. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's being built in honor of the 20th anniversary of the space station program. And then Exploration is another suit, and it's being built by our U.S. ILC Dover folks. And we're trying to get kids from as many countries as we possibly can to participate on it. So we're sending little pieces of it around the world and to different hospitals, and kids are painting on it and sending them back to us. And then that'll be built into a suit called Exploration, which we intend to be like the ambassador for Spaceship Earth. 
So we want kids to know that they're already in space. You know, we live on a planet. We're all in space. We all should be behaving like crew of this spaceship, not just passengers, and making this connection with each other. And because I think the thing is, we can't keep promising that we'll get everything up to the space station. And I don't think that's important really in this anyway, honestly. But if we can get everyone, not just kids, to realize that we're all in this together on this planet. You said everything or everyone up to this? I didn't follow that. We can't keep promising to get all of the artwork that we do sent up to the space station. Yes. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean, we've been, I think, blessed so far to get anything up there. Right. And so, you know, we don't want to promise kids that to, you know, to begin with. If we know something can go, we'll let them know. Or if it becomes a surprise afterwards that we just happen to be able to get something up there, that's great. But we discovered, though, in talking to these kids that while the space aspect of the art, like getting to space was really exciting and interesting to them, I think they were more or are more captivated, if anything, by the relationships they're establishing with other kids around the world. Yeah, Some of them are discovering for the first time that a place like Ohio in the United States even exists, or that a place like Mauritius, you know, exists. Some of these kids don't even know that these places on the planet exist. And so they're getting to know themselves with relation to everybody else that they share planet Earth with. And when we talk about being in space, it's like, you know, we might not think about it on a daily basis. (laughs) We're all in space on Spaceship Earth. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I find really interesting about astronauts who have returned is this common thread or thought around this common realization when you look back at Earth, like, whoa, holy cow, we really need to take care of this place. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really wonderful man named... Frank White, he's out of Harvard, and he coined the term the overview effect, Mm -hmm. which has really caught on. And I mean, I didn't even know that term before I flew, but I knew it without knowing it (laughs) as I experienced it. I don't think there's anybody that's flown in space that doesn't feel this in some way where, you know, you're separated more than you probably ever will be in your entire life from the planet. And I can tell you, I felt more connected to it there than I normally do down here, like right in the middle of it. It was like, oh my gosh, that is the who and where we are. So all of us is, it's like right there. And this reality that we live on a planet, you know, we're all earthlings, you know, the thin blue line thing about, you know, the only border mattering is that thin blue line of atmosphere that's protecting us all. And just the interconnectivity of absolutely everything and everyone down there. It's undeniable. And before I flew, I had read a lot from other people who'd flown. I talked to a lot of my colleagues in the office who'd flown before. From the earliest guys that flew, there were a couple that used the word like insignificant. You know, they had flown to the moon. They saw the whole planet out there. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, we are tiny in this grand scheme of universe. And I always hoped that what they meant by insignificant was that they were in awe. They were humbled by this just presence of this planet hanging in space. And not that they meant it in a negative way. You know, I mean, insignificant tends to have this kind of negative connotation to it. And I always hoped, oh, they can't mean that. They can't mean that. And from the second I looked out the window, I'm like, oh, no. Nope, absolutely not. There's no way they could have meant that. You know, if anything, there was an ultimate significance to it and that you would look at this planet that is absolutely perfectly placed, you know, with respect to the sun, you know, distance wise to take care of us. Everything that it, you know, encapsulates is designed to take care of us. And you get this, you know, just overwhelming sense that, okay, we need to make sure that whatever it is about this planet that cares for us 
we need to take care of so that that can continue. And I don't know if that's an ultimate respect thing or what, or a survival mode kicking in. It's like, (laughs) you know, it could be purely selfish motivation because, you know, the planet will survive us. You know, it's survived a lot worse than us before. You know, we're just tiny little blip on the timeline of earth and we can continue down this path of destruction, if you want to say, or ignorance or, Mm -hmm. you know, denial. And if we do, it will be to our detriment. It won't really be to the planet's. It will recover from us. But, yeah, the planet doesn't care. Uh, it's not save the planet, it's save us. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think about it, it's really cool to me because, you know, we go to space very deliberately. We go there, we build this spaceship that is this mechanical metal system that is all about mimicking what Earth does for us naturally. And we're very deliberate about it. We put together operating procedures, you know, we talk about here's the limited number of resources we have inside the space station. There's only enough air for six people to breathe. You can't have a crew of 10. You know, we have to clean the air and have clean water. All these things, how we generate our electricity. We do that very purposely for our spaceships. Mm -hmm. And yet we haven't figured it out. I haven't figured it out down here yet, you know? We need to look at it like it's a matter of scale. Like, okay, we don't have a crew of six people on a, like a space station. We've got a crew of seven billion or whatever it is down here on Spaceship Earth. Now, how do we deal with it together? Because we have to deal with it together or it's not going to be good for any of us. So. Yeah, and the reality yeah. of we have, these are the limited resources that we have. How do we choose to use them? Regardless of how many human beings there have been on the planet, there's been enough resources to take care of us all. Even yeah. now there is. It's just we have to figure out okay, how do we manage them to maintain it so that we survive? So now you've got like this buildup of technology too, right? And it's just a matter of distributing that as well. Part of that technology is like the interweb, you know, making sure that the knowledge, you know, that's out there is distributed. And when we start doing that, then you look at how like population is managed just by understanding, you know, or resources being available. You know, a family doesn't have to have 10 kids anymore so that they can work the farm. Right. Or 10 kids because seven of them are going to die either of disease or from war. Yeah. I mean, those are sad reasons to have children. And we see that, you know, through education and, you know, a level of, it's not even wealth, it's a level of kind of equitability with respect to basic needs that people discover they don't have to have children to supplement for that. You know, it doesn't mean people don't have families. It just means there's not this need to like overpopulate in order to guarantee that your line continues or that your farm survives, you know? Exactly. Yeah, that you're going to be cared for in old age. Yeah. So through all of that, there's several really interesting books about how we'll see, you know, instead of worrying about the population continuing to grow to 20 billion where we overpopulate our planet and we're, you know, live in the world of alien or whatever, where it's like that dystopic view of it, I really believe that we have the opportunity to, you know, look forward to like a Star Trek future or an Earthrise future or this future where we're managing it all together. Wait, so a Star Trek future, just to be clear, are you saying that you think one day we'll leave the planet and live out in space? I do, absolutely. You do. I think yeah, I do. You know, and there are reasons to do that as well. I mean at some point in time But at our, scale, our I mean like yeah, why, not? Why, why not? Why not? 
it. I mean, you know, think about it. It wasn't long ago that it would have been really difficult to imagine six people circling the Earth every 90 minutes on a space station. Yeah. From 15 different countries. Right. I mean, that would seem almost impossible. Not that long ago. Or the idea of walking on a moon or, you know, even thinking about going to Mars or having robotic missions that are circling other planets in our solar system. That's a big jet plane flying right over. <laughs> so I think it's all about like trusting our imagination. You know, a lot of what we do in space right now was based on kind of sci-fi ideas of, mm -hmm. you know, what could be possible. And I don't know, to me, that's just really interesting to think, you know, what seems almost not just impossible, but just like crazy to even think about. And the idea that those things probably will happen. Wow. I'm trying and to imagine. And they probably need to happen too. Because at some point the sun does decide that our planet doesn't need to exist anymore. You know, and then that's not good. If we really want humanity to survive. But that's like that, a billion years yeah. away, isn't it? It that is. This, it what is. happens? Yeah. The sun becomes a red giant and swallows us up? I think so. Yeah, I don't want to pretend like I really know. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> well, we can pretend. Yeah, we can pretend. <laughs> no one will know. But that too, that's like, well, you know, is a billion years an impossible thing to think about? I don't know. And I have to share this story with you. So I have this vivid memory as a kid with a National Geographic magazine, like sitting on the floor. And it was a space magazine, you know, like space themed stuff. So you know how Nat Geo always has those really cool pull out poster things in the middle yeah. of stuff? Well, this one had this poster, you pulled it out and kind of stretched out, you know, on either side of the magazine. And it was this big oval drawing on a white sheet of paper. And inside the oval was like, and it was either known universe or observable universe or something like that. But I mean, it was really beautiful. And you're like, oh, there's our galaxy and the, you know, all kind of spread out in this oval drawing. And then I remember looking at it and saying, oh my gosh, that's really cool. But what's all this white stuff around yeah. it? Like, what's this oval in the middle of, you know, this oval known universe thing? What is that heaven? Is that, you know, and then I'm like, is that infinity? Or is that just what we don't know about? And then of course, the white paper ends. And now you're on your carpet in your bedroom floor. And <laughs> You're looking out the window and it's like, holy moly, I have no clue what this means. And I still don't. You know, I mean, it keeps expanding what we know about it. And maybe the universe right. keeps expanding too. I don't know. But what all that white stuff is and what it all is as it spreads out onto the carpet and through the window, I don't so know. When you're up there hanging out in the space station and you're looking out, you see all the stars sort of hanging there, dripping, glittering all around. What happens in your mind? <laughs> I mean, I remember looking out the window and you want to look back and see Earth. It just glows like in nothing I'd ever seen before. I mean, it's like you turn the brightest light bulb on that you can imagine just splatter it with all the colors that you know Earth to be and it just glows. And then the blackness that it sits in, it's like blacker than and clearer than any black I've ever seen before. And it looks like it just goes on forever. Like you could reach into it, like there's depth to it, you know? And the same thing with the stars. When you see the stars at night, you know, if you get it really dark inside the space station and look out, it's stunning. And when I look at the sky from down here at night, it almost looks like a flat palette, you know, kind of a flat palette of stars. And up there, it looks like, it's not like you can tell how far one star is away from the other, but it looks like there's just this depth to the stars. You get this sense of it going on forever. And you realize you're just small in all of that. Like back to those initial Apollo guys, it's like small is not insignificant. You start wondering about what else is out there and, you know, what's all that white stuff around the 
poster in that Geo magazine. Did it make your stomach do anything weird? Like, did you get this weird pit in your stomach? Like, oh my God. I think so. I think if you let yourself sit there and think about it, it really, it's overwhelming. I mean, the beauty of it is overwhelming. You know, that whole like simple reality of the fact that we actually live on a planet, which we don't normally think about on a day-to-day basis is pretty overwhelming. What is it? Like earth spins at like a thousand miles an hour. And then we're going around the sun at like, what is it? 60,000 miles an hour or something. Like Don't that. ask me. I'll find the answer and put it in the show notes. And then I think it's something like that. And then on the space station, we're traveling around Earth at 17,500 miles an hour. I mean, it's all like these numbers that are kind of mind-boggling to think about anyway. Yeah. And then you think about the planet in this big, deep blackness of space. And I think you find yourself getting distracted. I mean, as it is, I had to set a timer when I went to look out the window. If it was you during did. the day. Oh, absolutely. It's the closest thing to meditation that I think I've ever felt where you just kind of transcend this place you're in, you're absorbed in it, you know, the planet's alive down there, you're rotating around it, you're seeing all of these things that seem to like present themselves new every time. You know, we travel around Earth every 90 minutes and a whole revolution of Earth can go by and you're like, oh my gosh, I need to go back to work. I'm not supposed to be here. I had like three other things I was supposed to do. So, you know, oh no, there's the Great Wall of yeah, China again. Shoot. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, they're paying me to work up here and not just look out the window. And so I really did. If I didn't have like just endless time to sit there and look out the window, I would set my timer because otherwise I would just be distracted by it. I mean, it yeah. sounds like not just distracted. It sounds like completely absorbed. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like you're sucked into it and you just keep thinking everything is beautiful that you're looking at. And it's like, okay, what's the next beautiful thing I'm going to see? What's the next beautiful thing? And oh, the sun is rising. I got to stay for that. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because you're going around as it's rotating. So you also travel in and out of daylight and darkness. Right. So we go around the earth every 90 minutes. So 16 times a day. And about every 45 minutes, you get a sunrise or a sunset oh at the gosh. window. Yeah. Incredible. How disorienting is that to your sort of internal, I hesitate to use circadian rhythm, but just like your own internal natural biology is supposed to see one sunrise and one sunset a day and you're seeing 16 of them. Does that trip yeah, you up? It's, no, it doesn't really. I think, you know, because you don't have like a big window in front of you all the time. It's not like the light is going on and off in the space station the, oh, okay. the whole day. I mean, you have to get in front of a window to see that. Okay. So we have, you know, the lights set for the time of day inside of the station. So really, you get there. We work to GMT. So, Uh you know, our schedule is all set to Greenwich Mean Time. And it's kind of like a jet lag at first, where you get there from whatever time zone you were coming from, even though you tried to sleep shift to the new time zone. It's really about getting adapted to that, not so much the day-night cycle of it. We have done some stuff on the station now where we're using blue lights when you wake up and then just white light during the day and then kind of a reddish tinted light at night to help with like just the natural body rhythm too, because that is useful for sure. But it's not really because you're getting this big sun and darkness, you know, 16 times a day. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. What are some of the things that you saw from space that are on earth that are easily identifiable that you wouldn't have expected being able to pick out? Well, you know, there was always the question of, do you see the wall of China, you know, Great Wall of China with, you know, your naked eye through the window? And you can't. I mean, you can't really. Oh, you can't. You can know where it is. You know, you can get a camera out and find it pretty easily. I think the thing that was interesting to me was not so much what I didn't know or didn't expect to be able to see, but just how cool it was to see things 
that I did expect to see, like the shape of Florida, uh-huh. you know, from space. It is undeniable. There's nothing that you confuse it with. It's just, oh, here we come. We're coming up around the corner of whatever. There's Florida. It sticks. To, I mean, whether it's night or day, you just know it. And then, of course, you can use that as your reference then to follow down. Okay, there's Cuba. There's all the Caribbean islands. And, oh, whoop, we're on the, sub, you know, the northern coast of South America. And it's just kind of cool how you can use those references that you expect to know when you see them. And then I think just the whole geography of the planet. You know, I was never good at geography in school, but there is absolutely no better place to just get to know Earth than, you know, looking out the window of your spaceship. Getting to know it so that if you were over like a big expanse of land, I mean, when I first got there, I'd be, okay, I didn't know if that was North America or Australia or where it was. Then it got to the point where I could look out the window and know just from the patterns and the colors that, okay, that's South Africa or that's Canada or that's Russia just because of the way it looked. And that was pretty neat, you know, just to feel like you knew the planet that way. Wow. So what's your path of orbit? Does it stay the same? It sounds like you're not just doing laps around the equator. It sounds like you're going all over. Yeah. Well, we're up. So the equator is what, zero. And so we're up at like a 51 degree, you know, latitude. And of course, because the earth is tilted yep. and because we're ro- it's rotating and we're rotating oh. around it, if you laid out a flat map of the earth, it would almost look like a sine wave, uh-huh. you know, of where we're going over the planet. Say if I was flying up over and I came across Florida one day, it's going to shift a little bit and up for like the next day. It's weird. So you're not going to see Florida every time you go around. Florida is going to only come into view every so many days. Your rotation is at a 51 degree angle with respect to like the up and down of the universe. And then the earth is 23 and a half degrees off of, you know, it does its thing within your rotation. Yeah. So the earth has its angle and then we're at like, if zero was the equator latitude, we're up like 51 degrees and kind of going around that. So, you know, we don't cross directly over the North pole or the South pole. You can kind of see that out you know, on the horizon sometimes because we never get that far north or south. Okay. But it's really cool because you kind of cover this whole big swath of the earth because of the different rotations. Oh, yeah, that's very so neat. awesome. Okay. So yeah. that would explain why we don't, here on earth, we don't see the space station go by every single time it goes right. overhead. Right. So you got to look for the times and days, you know, when, when it's, it's going to show go up. Over. Yeah. Okay. A lot of people don't realize that, first of all, they don't realize that they can see it at certain times. Mm-hmm. And then they don't necessarily realize that it's not just spinning around the planet in the same orbit. In the the same fixed orbit. Yeah. Okay. I know. It's pretty cool to think about though. Yeah. It's like one of those questions that I'd never thought to ask myself. Yeah. I never would have either before flying. And the only reason I would have known is because I'd seen like trajectory maps before, you know, that show this sine wave of it. That's so awesome. The other thing that's really cool to see out the window is uh, there's a lot of stuff that surprises you. And one of the questions that I always get is, you know, have you seen an alien? You know, you see aliens looking out the window. Uh, no, I don't, maybe they were looking in at me and I just didn't realize that. I don't know. But I didn't see anything like that. But I saw things that were strange and surprising. Oh. And one of those was a shooting star, like seeing a shooting star below me. Uh-huh. That was really cool. I never, no one had ever said that you see that from space. I never thought about it. I mean, you get so used to this idea of you're going to see a shooting star. It's looking up to see it. Right. 
And I was floating in front of the window one night by myself or night pass, I guess, by myself. And I see this, you know, like dot of light move across the sky below me. I'm like, oh my gosh, what was that? And I float and ask, you know, my crewmates, oh yeah, it's just probably, you know, micrometeorite shooting star, you know, going, going underneath. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. You know, so I go back wanting to see another one. And of course you don't, you know, see one (laughs) just because you want to see one. And, but I remember thinking, man, that's so unexpected. I just didn't expect to see that kind of thing. And it was really, really beautiful. And I hoped that I would see it again. And I did. But the other thing I thought was, golly, you know, I'm really happy that I saw that because that means it didn't hit my spaceship. You know, because that could be a bad thing if it hits your, you know, if it hits your ship, it can make a nice big hole in it. And that's not something you want to happen. So kind of this contrast between this really beautiful thing you're seeing that was completely unexpected. And oh, I'm so glad I saw that because it means it didn't hit my ship. Wait, so does the space station get hit by meteors and meteorites? Mm-hmm. Like even stuff that's like the size of sand, you know, little yeah. debris and things. But if you're going in opposite directions at, you know, 18,000 miles an hour, that little piece of sand can cause a problem too. Like what kind yeah, of problems does that cause? Well, I mean, the worst case is that it makes a hole in the side of your spaceship and then right. all the air, you yeah. know, all the air goes out. And, that sounds like know, a bad problem. You have to leave. Yeah. There's three major emergencies that we you know, worry about and train for. And that's a fire. I mean, you don't want a fire inside of a spaceship, a toxic atmosphere where something really toxic like ammonia gets into the the living compartment of the spaceship. And then the third one is what we call depressurization, or you get a hole in your spaceship or it's not sealed and all the air goes out. Those are the three main ones. And a depress is probably the most likely of anything just because of, you know, stuff that might hit you or, you know, we're always... Depress is a depressurization? Depressurization, yeah, sorry. You know, we have spaceships that are flying up and docking with the station. So you could end up with a leak between those two interfaces or, you know, we open and close hatches to go out and do a spacewalk. You know, if the hatch doesn't close properly after, you could lose air through a pathway like that, you know, in addition to the potential of, you know, getting hit by something. So has that ever happened that something, a tiny thing has hit the space station and caused depressurization? We've had small debris hit the station and have had small leaks before where we have been able to repair that. We've had interfaces that didn't seal properly at first and then, you know, you reconfigure it and they seal. But we've never had, you know, a major incident of something, a piece of debris hitting the station and, you know, causing a problem. I would say the worst case would have been, and that wasn't with the space station, it was with the Russian near space station when they had a collision that was caused with a cargo vehicle that was docking. And in that case, they did. They lost a module, had to seal it off and, you know, make sure everybody was on the other side of that hatch because it, you know, it caused the atmosphere to escape Yeah, um, because it didn't seal properly and they weren't able to uh, fix that seal. So did they jettison whatever piece of the station that is, or is it still attached? Or did it get no, that, that would have still been attached. Um, the Mir station deorbited years ago, so oh, okay. it's, it's not up there anymore. But oh, gotcha. um, yeah, so that's probably the worst case of something like that happening. So how risky do you did you take this work to be? Totally respected the... <laughs> you know, the risk associated with it. I think for me, the the highest risk, even number wise, is associated more with launch and landing than it yeah. is with, you know, your time living on orbit on the space station. I think the awareness of that, not just because you're aware that it's risky, but the knowledge of the people that are working on the program, 
getting to know the people that are building, you know, the hardware and understanding the processes that go into it is what kind of, you know, calms that a little bit. I don't think it ever does for your family though. (laughs) No. And it, you know, I think about people ask a lot of times, you know, what were you afraid? Was it scary to launch on the shuttle and land on the shuttle and live in space? I'm like, no, I mean, it was never scary or frightening because we train so much for all these things that we think we know could go wrong. I always felt like as a crew, we would be doing whatever we possibly could to take care of something that goes wrong. And, you know, something catastrophic is just like down here on earth. It's something that you just have no control over. There's not a way to recover from it. But my fear, if any, was associated like with my family watching me launch because I know I know it's a lot more difficult to watch somebody you love strap into, you know, a rocket than it is to be the one strapping into it. Yeah. I mean, that same thing happens for me when I watch my friends, sure. you know, taken off. There's just this knowledge, you know, you just know it's a risky thing and it's a lot easier to be inside of it than it is to be watching it. What's it yeah. like inside it when you climb in, like you're on the launch pad. I don't even know how you get into the shuttle. I guess <laughs> there's a series of ladders and staircases. Yeah, yeah, So we, you know, it's a couple hours before launch that you go out to the launch pad and there's an elevator that takes you up on the launch pad for the space shuttle. It was the 195 foot level. So you got off at the, you know, at 195 feet and that's where the hatch, you know, the vehicle's standing straight up. So Uh the hatch is there. That's where the hatch is that you would get in. There's a crew of guys up there that help you get all suited up and ready and strapped in and stuff. So you get suited up up there, not down on the ground. You wear your orange, like we used to launch in the orange spacesuits. So you wear that suit out to the launch pad, but then they hook you up in your parachute that's going to go on you in the seats and all the extra stuff. They get your helmet on you, gloves, all of that. They get you all sealed in and, okay. and strapped into the seat. So that happens and everybody's in the shuttle. And of course, because you're facing up, you're laying on your back. Yeah. So you're, it's like you're laying on your back and you are, you're out there a couple hours before launch and you get all comfy and configured and stuff. And then the crew doesn't really have anything to do until about 20 minutes before launch. You know, the countdown's going on to get you down to zero. But in that couple hours before launch, you're really just kind of chilling there. And most people fall asleep for a little while, you know, lay on their back, fall asleep for a little while. And I did that. It was very comfortable to just relax because there's all this excitement and anticipation building up. And as you're getting to the launch pad, you're getting strapped in. It's nice to just be able to kind of let it go go zen for a few minutes, you know. And then at about that 20 minute point, the crew starts getting involved. And that's mostly with monitoring things or throwing a switch or something. But it's really not until that like 10, 9, 8 point where you think, oh my gosh, I might actually like go to space today. You know, you're not, you're not really believing it's going to happen until that is going on. And on the space shuttle, it was, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, and then at 6 seconds, that big orange tank was just filled with liquid hydrogen and liquid uh-huh. oxygen. And that was just fuel for the three little engines on the back of the shuttle. So that would start flowing at 6 seconds. And I always thought that would be really kind of violent and dynamic, uh-huh. but it wasn't. It was kind of a little bit of a rumble. But what happened was because the engines are at an angle, they would light and then the whole vehicle would do this, like they called it the twang. (laughs) So the tip of the whole shuttle like pitched back, like I think it was about 10 degrees. And then is perfectly timed for when it came back to straight was when it got to zero. 
countdown got to zero and those two big solid rocket boosters lit. And that is when, I mean, literally it's like you're kicked from behind. Three of you start sitting on top of you. You're shaken like I've never imagined that you can shake. You know, it's like your insides are just jello shaken. And your body responds to that. I remember like this huge smile just coming on my face and like looking at my arms shaking (laughs) and high-fiving, you know, Al next to me and, you know, a little woohoo, you know, the woohoo comes out. You don't want to be unprofessional (laughs) and like scream it, but it's coming out. Woohoo, you know? And for about two and a half minutes is while those boosters are on. I mean, you are just shaking like you can't imagine. And because you're accelerating, it feels like three of you are sitting on your chest. It's just, you know, because of the three Gs, you know, you get three times the force of gravity on you. The boosters separate and they don't do that gracefully. It's like, you know, pyrotechnics. So this big bang and this big flash out the window. And then you're still heavy, but the shaking stops. And now you're just riding on that big orange fuel tank, which is all liquid fuel. And you're riding on that for another six minutes or so. And then that orange tank separates, big bang, big flash, and you're in space. Like eight and a half minutes from the time you leave the launch pad, the time you're orbiting Earth. And it's just, you know, like from zero to 17,500 miles an hour in eight minutes. It's incredible. Wow. (laughs) It's incredible. Okay, no wonder you feel so many Gs for so long. Yeah. And then you just, when that tank separates, this is like shaking and feeling heavy to not shaking, feeling heavy to just like liberated. Like you look up and your arms are floating and your (laughs) pencil's floating on the end of a tether and anything that wasn't tied down is floating around you. And I mean, you absolutely cannot wait to get out of your seat and just see what it's going to be like to float and fly like that. It's amazing. So what's that moment like when you actually do unbuckle? All the experienced people just tell you for the first time, they're like, just be, you know, very deliberate. Try to maintain a 1G orientation so your head is up where up would normally be. And, you know, don't go immediately into doing somersaults and flipping around because your little hairs in your ears might not get it and your stomach might not feel good. So I was kind of respectful of that at first, but then I realized that I felt good. I didn't think I was going to have a problem with that. And just, you just feel... I mean, it's just so freeing to mm-hmm. just push just lightly off a wall and move in three dimensions. I mean, it's, it's everything you think it's going to be and better. It really <laughs> is. It's so much better. And then over time, what was really cool to me is how quickly, and this is true for coming back from space as well. And I think it's true in most of the things we do. I mean, I did an underwater mission and I felt like this was true as well, is that our brains and our bodies very quickly figure out how to adapt to extreme environments. Mm-hmm. And in space, they do it in both a good and a bad way. And that's probably true everywhere. So in a good way, it's like all of a sudden your brain realizes, I really am moving in three dimensions. I don't need to push hard off this wall to move from here to there. I can just tap it and rotate. And I mean, it's wonderful. But they also figure out, hey, I don't need bones or muscles anymore. Right. To survive up here either. They don't waste any energy maintaining your bones or muscles. So you go very quickly into kind of an accelerated osteoporosis kind of thing and your muscles going away. So we like within the first day or two start our exercise regime so that we can counteract that. And that's when you see the pictures of, um, I think you're on a treadmill and you're belted in with super bungee and... Yeah, because you have to. Imagine just running and (laughs) you just run up and float off the thing. 
So you load yourself up with these bungees and straps and stuff. And then we have a resistive exercise device that's really, really good for like major muscle groups. And there's a cycle ergometer as well. You you can strap your feet in and set the resistance on that. Very effective. Exercise is very effective. Do you work up a sweat or is it just to like... Absolutely. Absolutely work up a sweat. And sweating in space is kind of weird because there's no, you know, down here you're moving around and you got gravity, which is causing the sweat to drip off of you. Uh-huh. sweat up there it's almost like you can feel it I, at the place I noticed it the most was like on my scalp you know I never really noticed my scalp sweating sure. down here you know but up there it's like your forehead and your face and your scalp it's like the sweat is building up but it builds up like in a sheet like in this layer <laughs> it's like you feel this layer of moisture like building up on your head and your and so you'll see people when they're working out they're always like just kind of dabbing themselves because it's not dripping off it's just like a sheet of sweat on you. Kind of icky. So it doesn't like drip off into bubbles and then float away? No, unless you shake it off. I mean, if you shake something off, it it will. But just naturally, if you just sit still and while you're sweating, it's just going to continue to build up like in this layer of moisture <laughs> on you. Bizarre. Yeah, really weird. But that, you know, that whole kind of physics of liquids, of fluids in space, yeah, is neat because it can work to your advantage as well. And that like we don't have a running water shower on the space station. You just use like these bags of water. You squirt out balls of water. Mm-hmm. So I could squirt out a ball of hot water and then stick my arm through the ball of water and it would make like this glove of hot water on my arm. So unless I shook it off, it was going to stay like this, you know, sheet of water on my arm. And I could take the soapy washcloth, mush it around and then put my arm through another ball of water to kind of rinse it off and then dry it. And I always joke with kids like you probably could make a big enough ball of water to get your whole body in it but that would be really messy so they wouldn't want you doing <laughs> doing that on the space station but technically you could do that you could just make a big enough ball of water to get in you know come out soak yourself up get back in the bowl of water <laughs> oh but it works you know i never felt like i couldn't get clean on stage just because i didn't have you know a running water shower that doesn't mean i didn't want a running water shower at <laughs> home but i never felt like you know I, I couldn't stay clean because of that that's so wild yeah. I mean, we pick up on some of these questions and answers, you know, down here, but that's one I hadn't ever heard before. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so cool. much, it's like, so much of it is about, you know, just like kind of subtle and kind of very different things that the way you live and work up there. But I just always kind of looked at it like it was part of the adventure. Yeah. You don't have a running water shower, but you stay totally clean doing this really cool, like stick your arm through a ball of water, or you could just squirt the water on you. And if you squirted it slowly enough, it would just spread out, you know, and it could squirt it on your whole body. It was great. And, and I think that's why we go there. You know, we can take gravity out of the equation. And for the science that we do up there, that's a big factor. We're taking gravity out of the equation. We're able to learn things about stuff that we thought we already knew a lot about, but we discover whole new things, whether it's, you know, biology or chemistry or, you know, the physics of something. We learn something new about it because we can take that gravity factor out of the equation. Right. And just uncover the unexpected. You know, everything we're doing up there is about improving life here on Earth, whether it's the science or the way we live off the grid up there or the relationships between, you know, the countries. I mean, I think it's really and truly all about 
improving life on Earth. And when I think about us going back to the moon, like going to Mars, that's what it's all about. I mean, it's about improving life here and, you know, expanding life to other places, even maybe in that Star Trek way over the future too. You know, the relationship thing, I think is if we didn't do a single bit of science up there, if we could just still establish these relationships like we have, the value of that, I think we just can never underestimate how valuable that is, both in space and, you know, down here for these 15 countries as well. You mean developing and nurturing peaceful relationships between countries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do in space on that space station with these 15 countries peacefully, successfully for the last 20 years have operated there and regardless of what's going on down here on earth. And that that's not just, you know, mechanically something doesn't fit together and we figure out how to do it. It's political priorities. It's, operational priorities, all of these things that are not always necessarily in line for everyone. We have the rules of engagement are established for how we figure it out. And again, it's just this really, I don't know, I look at the space station as this model, you know, like this model for how we should be operating down here on Earth. That's so interesting that you say that. I mean, it's a deeper level than I think most of us appreciate that, you know, it seems like it's easy enough to get along with people from different cultures, different nations, different backgrounds when you have an operational mission in front of you. But what you're saying is that it goes much deeper in terms of like the whole geopolitical of things plays in and needs to get started. Absolutely. And I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything easy about it, but somehow we've all decided that there really is this greater good operational mission associated with it. And I think we were talking earlier about, you know, down here on earth, the earth surviving us, you know, if we don't change our ways, it could be earth, not us. And that could be our greater good operational mission is how do we maintain our planet so that all of us survive? Because that's really what we're doing in space. We're maintaining the life support system so that all of us, regardless of which country we're from, can survive up there and then do the science stuff and the other stuff that, you know, goes on. But without the life support aspect of it, you know, you're not going to do any of it. You've got nothing. Yeah. Wow. So what's the transition? What's next? (laughs) You know, the transition for me would really, you know, I, I look at, you know, I had this time working with NASA for 28 years, you know, worked with NASA as an engineer and then as an astronaut. And now I'm finding that I have, I think, even a greater mission to follow from it. And I'll get the question of, well, how could anything, you know, be better in your life now? You, you know, you went to space. How could anything be better? I'm like, oh my gosh, like do me. Like I should be putting a fork in my eye or something like I'm done. I'm like, no, I mean, I think it's like everything we do in life, you know, you take that experience and then you figure out how do I use that and share it in a way that's not just good for me, but good for everyone around me. I feel like everybody should know what we're doing on that space station with yeah. our partners up there and that it is all about, you know, improving life here on earth for everyone. And having had the chance to paint in space, it was like, as I was thinking about retiring, like what could my unique way of sharing that experience be? And I kept coming back to art as this way that whether you're talking about sharing a spaceflight experience or any other kind of experience, art just is like this universal communicator, you know? I mean, you can engage with audiences that might not ever even think about a space station or what we do space exploration-wise, and you can engage them through that. And I've tried hard to do that. I think it's working well as kind of this next phase of what's my mission in life. And then having the chance to get involved with 
a project like the Spacesuit Art Project and the Space for Art Foundation, where we're taking this, I don't know, this inspiration of space exploration and then tying it together with art and working with kids in really an art therapy kind of way, like allowing them the opportunity to use space as a way to transcend whatever experience they're having at that time that might not be, you know, the happiest for them. Yeah. And it's the kids and it also, it isn't just the kids. It also ripples out, right? Like even just me, I imagine those kids knowing that they put some color on a spacesuit and it went to space. You know, anybody that comes in contact with this is positively affected in some way. And I think about the kids for sure. You know, we go into the clinical setting with these kids and they are going through what I hope, you know, in the pediatric cancer centers for sure. And a lot of these other places where, you know, these kids and their families are going through what I hope, honestly, hope and pray is the most you know, tragic thing they ever have to deal with in their lives, you know, Mm -hmm. and they come into this room and they sit down to paint and they sit up straighter, you know, all of a sudden they're sitting up straighter. All of a sudden they're talking to the kid or to me sitting next to them and they're talking about space. And then the next thing you know, that extends to them talking about their own future and what, you know, them seeing themselves, you know, in space or doing something, you know, that's completely unrelated, but it's taking them outside of that hospital room setting. And it's allowing them to think beyond that. If we didn't do anything else but that, I would say we had had a successful mission. You know, I mean, just that is huge. And that's a huge perspective shift. Oh, absolutely. And that makes me happy that you say that because I think about all of this as perspective shift. Whether you're looking out the window of a spaceship and seeing Earth, that way, that's a perspective shift. It allows you to recognize this interconnectivity you have with everyone else. But the same thing I think is happening when we're working with these kids on these projects where their one piece of art is becoming part of something much bigger that's built by kids from all over the planet. And they know that. They're not thinking just about their own painting. They're thinking about what it's becoming a part of. And that, to me, if they can take that with them outside the hospital room and through the rest of their life, oh my gosh, the decisions you make when you think about yourself interconnected to everything else around you are very different than the ones you think about when you're just selfishly thinking about your own thing and immediate surroundings. It's so interesting to me how analogous those experiences are. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is one that really like floored me was, and we're trying to figure out how to utilize this too is, and I'm told that this is not just this one conversation I had, but several other of my colleagues have experienced the same thing with kids that they've spoken with and then talking to other, you know, art therapists and stuff too, and what, what they've seen. So I'm talking to this little girl, if she was seven years old, she was old you know, in this session, you know, we're doing painting for these spacesuits. You know, she says to me, she's like, Nicole, you know, going to space as an astronaut must be a lot like what I deal with here in the hospital for my treatment. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, you don't get to see your mommy and daddy the same way or your friends and you're eating all different kinds of food and they do all different kinds of tests on you and your body's changing and your blah, blah, blah and on and on. I'm like, oh my gosh, you are totally right. You know, so the same thing that we're doing with these kids in a clinical setting in a hospital are totally applicable to astronauts flying further away from our planet. You know, you get on a spaceship going to Mars and it's some point you don't see earth out the window anymore. You know, you are in a small place for nine months heading to this other planet. How do you then, you know, kind of psychologically deal with that? Are you in the holodeck like space, you know, like Star Trek? Are you painting on your iPad? I mean, what VR thing? I mean, what are you doing that allows you to, you know, think outside of that? Like, 
oh my gosh, you know, it's really profound kind of stuff that comes from it. In addition to the really amazing kind of base level thing that we're trying to do just with these kids in a hospital. It just makes me think that, you know, so often we get in our familiar and known rut not rut, but like we see to our horizon and that's kind of as far as we look. But when challenged and given the opportunity to rise above it and look down on it from above or from outside, just how more enriched that image is, whether you're an astronaut or whether you're seven in a hospital with cancer. Yeah. You know, I, I always hear from people like, oh, well, I wish I could go to space and feel that same thing. I'm like, you do not. You <laughs> do not have to go to space to feel this. You do not have to go to space to know that, you know, everything and everyone around you is connected to you in some way. I mean, there are so many other ways. I mean, just leave your own neighborhood and look at things from a different perspective, you know, go up to the top of a building and look, you know, flying in an airplane. I remember feeling some of the same exact things when I had my first airplane ride about, you know, this relative nature of, of us all. And I think that that's why for me, it comes down to those three lessons. I hope Anyone I speak to walks away with those three lessons of, you know, we live on a planet, we're all earthlings, and the only border that matters is the thin blue line of atmosphere around us all, because that just puts us where we are. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it gives us the relative sense of who we all are. And I do think we make different decisions if we think about living on a planet. There's something to a simple message that is meaningful. And I think that that's, you know, that's really what we're talking about. It's not anything that we don't learn when we're in kindergarten. I mean, at some point we all learn we live on a planet. Yeah. You know, at some point we all learn that we're all on it together and that, you know, we're protected by this atmosphere and that we have to respect the resources around us and the way we, you know, treat them and each other. But how we act on that through our lives is very different because we don't keep those things in mind all the time. It's exactly that, right? We make it so complicated. Mm -hmm. And when you distill it, all it is, is we're all here together. We all have the same planet. We all share it. Let's figure it out. Yep. And I think kids are a great place to start because, you know, if they can carry that in their heads, you know, through whatever experiences they're having, I mean, it'll be better on the playground, you know, and it'll be better later in life when they're working with people from all over the world as well. There was something that I want to make sure that I sneak in here and that I'm a connection to Carol, who you met at TEDx and, you know, one of 300 million people in the country. And I do want you to know that this is the experience of a lifetime for me to talk Aww. to an astronaut. It is really just the coolest, coolest thing. And what you don't know is that like all my kiddos, my all my kiddos, my two kiddos have astronaut onesies at every size, like oh, six excellent. month, nine month, two T, three T, like <laughs> astronaut onesies. I'm so- I have mine. It's good. <laughs> What's that? I have mine. I have my astronaut onesie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You have an adult astronaut onesie. It's yeah. probably not fleece. <laughs> I mean, it really is such a treat. And when I was like six, you know, they asked you what you want to be, right? And I wanted to be an astronaut. And I'm sure one of many people you've spoken to wanted to be an astronaut. And this is probably the closest I will ever come to getting to space. Hopefully not, but maybe. Yeah. Don't ever say, never say never, I guess is the way. Yeah, not never because I'm going to buy my ticket as soon as they're available. (laughs) Yeah. I'm hoping that I, I'm looking for that way to become independently wealthy so that I can do that. (laughs) I know. It's like, just go online and get my ticket to space. I genuinely not just appreciate your time, but the opportunity to speak with you. It really has been such a treat. Well, thanks. I'm glad that I could be the astronaut that you talked to. (laughs) (laughs) Nicole, this has been such a treat. Thank you for coming on the She Thinks Big podcast. Thanks, Geraldine. I have really enjoyed it. And as you can tell, I could talk about this stuff for hours. And we could listen to you for hours. If you want to find out more about the She Thinks Big podcast or hear previous episodes, head on over to my website, shethinksbigpodcast.com. 
And of course, I want to know what you're thinking big about. I hope you'll share in the She Thinks Big Facebook group. I love hearing from listeners because here in my studio, all I hear is crickets and my meowing cats. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do leave me a raving five-star review. You can write to me at Geraldine at SheThinksBigPodcast.com. And if you want to send a tweet, I'm at Geraldine Carter. You've been listening to She Thinks Big. See you next week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.